From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Mental health, already loaded words that become more so after mass shootings. What do people fail to understand about mental illness and violence? Then, who wins and who loses when police block scanner traffic? And later, he's the singer-songwriter behind Walking in Memphis. Now, Mark Cohn has a record with the Blind Boys of Alabama, which feeds his love of gospel. Well, John said the city was four square wide. It was there from the time I was a kid. I don't even know why or how. I was a Jewish kid growing up in the suburbs of Cleveland, but somehow gospel music made its way through to my my brainwaves. Cone kicks off the western leg of his summer tour with the Blind Boys in Colorado, where he almost lost his life. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. After a mass shooting, there are words that come up time and again. Mental illness, crazy, even monster. Words that we want to reflect on now with the policy director of Mental Health Colorado. That's Mo Keller. Welcome back to the program, Mo. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Mass shootings and mental illness. Is there a connection? You know... When you look at all of the um, mass shootings that have taken place, there certainly are a few that have been uh, perpetrated by individuals who have a psychosis. But when you look at the broader swath of things, um, that is not the case. For example, is white being a white supremacist, is that a mental illness? Do we count that? Um, is someone who has extreme hate or someone who has extreme fear um, are, are all those mental illnesses. So when we look at the number of um, uh, shootings that have taken place, generally speaking, individuals who have a mental illness are a very small portion of that. And it is unfair to say that anyone who has a mental health condition is violent or is um, capable of uh, committing an act so horrendous as the ones that we have been seeing. Um, individuals who have a mental illness are generally more often victims because they're unable to defend themselves, particularly if they are uh, homeless, uh, than they are perpetrators of crime. And that's statistically been shown. I have also heard that uh, those who struggle with mental illness, if they act in a violent way, may do so towards themselves more often than they would someone else. Is yes, that true? very definitely help, true. Yeah, help yes. us understand that. Most individuals who have a psychosis, and I might, I might mention that um, uh, individuals who have psychosis are a very small niche of the entire swath of mental health conditions. But those folks, um, if they are prone towards um, uh, damaging themselves or others, it's usually self-inflicted on themselves. That's very true. I'd like to have you reflect on something we heard earlier this week from Arapahoe County District Attorney George Brockler. He prosecuted the Aurora Theater shooter and actually worked on the Columbine case. In Columbine, there was no diagnosis that we're aware of before the shootings. But all of the experts that have all looked at this have all said, based on the information that they've looked at after the shooting, that these guys were diagnosable, including making Harris a psychopath. The Aurora Theater shooter diagnosed the Planned Parenthood shooter. The idea that we're going to have a bunch of uh, mass shootings separate from mental illness, it could be true, but I think that hasn't been our experience here in Colorado. I feel to some extent you've already answered that, but just reflect on, on those specific Colorado examples, would you? 
When it, it, it's difficult to say that when it, after the fact, when you look 10 years in retrospect, gee, someone must have had a mental illness, but it was undiagnosed. We don't know that to be the case. They may not have had that at the time. The, the religious um, shooting at the Planned Parenthood, that was a religiously motivated ideology. Um, again, do we look at that as a mental illness? Uh, so you, you're talking about in Colorado Springs. In, yes, the one that, that happened there. Um, so um, it it's unfair to single out in an entire swath of shootings and in and in, uh, instance instances that take place, to single out just mental health as as the cause of all of those because that is not true nationwide. You raised some interesting questions at the very beginning, and I, I wonder if you raised them not to answer them yourself or to have our listeners answer them for themselves. I think one of them was, is white supremacy a mental illness? Uh, I, I could imagine you thinking that's not the case, but that mm-hmm. is what you should look at. Uh, or I, I, what, what's your answer to that question? Well, the, the, my answer is that it's not so simple as to say guns are the problem, mental illness is the problem, social media is the problem, hate is the problem. It's actually a confluence of all those factors together. It's very complex. So how is it that one individual becomes a loner, doesn't feel connected to community, is attracted to finding blame for why, or to maybe attracted to finding a home where they feel like they're more accepted? The, the, the question for us is how do we at our community level and at our neighborhood level, how do we better um, get early prevention and intervention when a, a youngster seems to be moving in that direction? I'm glad that you brought this up because it seems that often in these cases, we hear people talk about warning signs, but maybe someone fell through the cracks, worried family and friends didn't report something, the police were unable to act. How does this happen? What about our mental health care system means that there's not the kind of intervention you're talking about when someone starts to kind of stray in all of these ways? Right. We don't have enough early intervention and prevention efforts, specifically for children. Uh, We don't have enough um, community supports. And so I, I go back to how do we make our neighborhoods and communities mentally healthy and and emotionally well? And how do we do that with the schools? How do we do that in early childhood? How do we do that with uh, young folks, with teenagers? Um, And and this is something that I think we as a society have to address is the more comprehensive look of how we show respect and, um, and acceptance for everybody so that people don't have that disconnect. The, the major thing about shooters, um, most of them are male, most of them are white, um, and they're all disconnected. They're, they're, they don't have good relationships with human beings. They don't have places they feel they belong. A lot of them are unemployed or underemployed. They just don't feel like they are contributing anything. And I think that's a, that's a real key element for us. Whether that individual has a mental illness or not, I think that we can um, uh, address that much better, and I think we need to. We heard uh, this week from the head of the Division of Homeland Security, that's the state uh, division in Colorado, that increasingly white supremacists, for instance, are being radicalized online. Mm-hmm. Do you think that connection made virtually is a sign of the kind of 
disconnection that they might feel with, you know, human contact. Sure. Uh huh. Sure. You know, there's no question that social media um, in, in, is much more enabling than in decades past for someone to be able not even to leave their home, just to be able to go in and get um, various kinds of uh, uh, information that is for them reinforcing. Maybe it may be completely wrong. As a matter of fact, we have a lot of that on social media as well. But it certainly fans the flames. It strikes me that a vicious circle is at play. So stigma around mental illness often keeps people from seeking help. Yes. Then a high-profile act of violence occurs. Mental health is so often singled out. Yes, that's my point. And what, stigma grows? Right. Yes. You know, if I had one first request of our elected officials, the general public as well, but our elected officials, I would want them to show leadership by bringing civil discourse back into the public arena by bringing, by civilizing the conversation. When elected officials make disparaging remarks about individuals who have a mental illness, it does not help. It hurts. As a matter of fact, we have enough trouble now with stigma trying to get people who want to receive services but hold back because they're afraid of, of the, the, the public and the social consequence of, of seeking services. So, we're exacerbating that when we have elected officials that um, damage the uh, reputation and the dignity of individuals who have a mental illness. Uh, Mo Keller of Mental Health Colorado, I was sitting in a movie theater after this weekend's mass shootings, and the thought kept dogging me, what if someone walked in with a gun? You know, Where would I hide? How would I escape? Uh, I've already talked about this on the show, and I asked our listeners if they had similar thoughts that if they did, I wanted them to share them. But we heard from Nina McVicker of Littleton who recorded her thoughts from the passenger seat of a car. I think about a shooter situation all the time. Uh, Everything that we want to go to that's public, where we're going to be with a lot of people, where we're going to be distracted looking at something else, um, where we're all sort of together, like movies, um, sporting events, baseball games, concerts. And I guess now, whenever you're going shopping too, constantly worrying about, you know, what if a shooter walks in here? Where are the exits? Where would I grab my kids? Where would I take them? I heard some good advice on a podcast one day, and it was just, if something bad happens, don't go out the way you came in. Look for a different exit, because everybody else is going to be going out the way they came in, so you got to find a different exit. And just the fact that that's something that we think about all the time, I mean, it's necessary. It keeps us safer, I guess. Um, just kind of makes me sad that that's part of our everyday thought process now. It struck me that after a mass shooting, there's all this talk about the attacker's mental health. But these events affect people's mental health everywhere. Absolutely. It sure does. All of us. Including folks who may have even previously been struggling with mental health. Share a few thoughts before we go. Yes. So um, it is natural for us to, when there's a mass shooting of some sort, to say, how did this happen? How could it happen? We're trying to find an excuse. We're trying to find a reason. And it's, it's so complex. But that event affects all of us with our anxiety or with our depression. And, and we shouldn't have to live this way, but I, 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 it, it does have this kind of effect on all of us. So it's important for all of us 
to remember that it's normal and it's natural to have these human emotions and that we should deal with them. You can talk to people. Um, you can uh, uh, use the the crisis sign, as I know you'll be, be bringing up. Yeah, I think just to wrap up, let me say that if, okay. if you're struggling with mental health, thoughts of suicide, or what have you, you can text TALK to 38255. Again, 38255, text TALK. Mo, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for your interest. She's Policy Director for Mental Health Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Here's what Denver police scanners sound like to the public now. Yeah, that silence wasn't a mistake. You see, DPD just moved to an encrypted system, and that means no one else besides them can listen in, including the news media. Denver is not the first department in Colorado to do this, but it is one of the largest. The decision raises questions about accountability and transparency, says Jeff Roberts. He leads the Colorado Freedom of Information Coalition, I should disclose that CPR is a member. Hi, Jeff. Good morning. Earlier this year, you backed a bill that would have limited encryption of scanner traffic. That bill failed. Why do you think it's important for the public to be able to listen in to this kind of law enforcement activity? When police departments encrypt all of their radio transmissions, it hinders the public's right to know what police what what their police department is doing, what's happening in their communities. And it also is an accountability issue. It makes it it, it makes it difficult for the news media to and the public to to hold their public servants accountable. For those who have not spent a lot of time in newsrooms, can you help us understand how the press in the past has used scanner traffic? Sure. I spent twenty five years of my career in newsrooms and I was never a uh, a dedicated police reporter, but I filled in occasionally and certainly watched what what uh, the reporters and editors who were listening to the scanners were were doing. And this is a really important news gathering tool. They're listening in, or they were listening in, to to scanner traffic to hear, uh, you know, what was happening. So uh, you wouldn't necessarily just immediately report, and you probably wouldn't immediately report on what you hear on the scanner. You want to check it out, but it gives you the information you need to know where to go, uh, to send a news crew out to, into the community right away to cover breaking news, and it also uh, gives you information to know what questions to ask police about something that's unfolding. If scanners are encrypted, when scanners are encrypted, what do you think it opens the door to? Get more precise for me about your fears. Well, my fear is that the agency will control all of the information or control most of the information, what gets out to the public. And we really, you know, we always need an independent um, uh, monitor. And that's what the news media does on the public's behalf. They're not just doing this for their own benefit. They're doing this uh, to inform the public. Is there an example you'd cite? So um, there there are already instances, and I've seen uh, reporters posting tweets about um, information coming out of, of the police department that's either very, that's very limited about something that happened. So last weekend, for instance, at a drugstore, there was uh, someone who who ended up, who had a gun and a knife, they ended up being put down, 
by the police with a rubber bullet, all the police department tweeted was uh, the person was taken into custody without incident. You know, the old kind of nothing to see here, move along. Huh, uh, a rubber was, bullet does not strike me as without incident. Right. It was only later on when they when uh, they saw the police department, uh, the police report, did they know that there was more to it. Okay. The other side of this debate is focused on safety, not only for officers, but for witnesses and victims. So here's Denver Police Chief Paul Payson. When we ask our community to call in to report crimes, we have an obligation to to keep their information private. Me calling in on my neighbor, me calling in to report a domestic violence incident, and then it being broadcast over these different apps, contact Paul Payson at this address, at this phone number that's not you know conducive to that community trust uh, as well. And we have examples of individuals who have used this type of information information to evade law enforcement, to evade capture, to further their criminal activity. One of the cases Bazin is referring to apparently involved Mauricio Venzor Gonzalez. He was arrested in 2017, suspected of shooting at an officer. Months later, he escaped when Denver Sheriff's deputies took him to a hospital, and he then evaded arrest for five months, apparently with the help of a police scanner app. Uh, What do you say to this idea, one, of privacy and two, of that scanner traffic being used to help the bad guys? I understand that there are those concerns. We haven't heard a lot of real specific examples like that. Um, And so, you know, what what is the, the, the solution to this? Um, there are a lot of people in the public that actually do listen to scanners, and some of them do so to know what's going on in their neighborhoods, and some of them actually listen to to inform uh, news organizations. They kind of clue them in if they hear something. It's interesting. But- when I was in local television, this was in Sioux City, Iowa, we had a woman uh, who was confined to her home, mm-hmm. and her hobby was to listen to the scanner traffic. And then she would call the newsroom and say, you really ought to get on such and such a story. Uh, I know a man in Trinidad who is confined to his home, and he does exactly that for Southern Colorado. And he often tells them things that they might have missed or haven't heard. So there's that aspect of it. But one of the solutions that was discussed was giving uh, radios or selling, allowing uh, news organizations to be able to buy radios um, at the department's cost. Um, in, so at least they have that ability. But then you know, there were sticking points with an, an agreement that the, that the news organizations were asked to sign. This idea that scanners can be, you know, a useful tool for general updates to the public, not just the news media, um, doesn't really fly with Denver's Chief Payson. We absolutely were concerned about uh, ham radio operators or or radio enthusiasts that listen to this. But if you're looking at the big picture, if you're you're weighing uh, public safety versus whether or not somebody can be entertained on a Friday night by listening to police dispatch or fire dispatch, we absolutely have to side with the victims of crime, the witnesses of crime, and make sure that this information isn't broadcast. So that's what we balanced in this very tough decision. But, uh, you know, again, it wasn't a decision that that was made in a vacuum of, you know, okay, we're going to just flip the switch and, and call everything good. He talks about entertainment there. What do, what do you think of that word? There are people who are scanner enthusiasts. That's what they're, they 
some they're they're called or they call themselves, but I don't know that they're just doing it for entertainment. Some people might be doing that, but some people, a lot of people who do this, who aren't news media, are are listening in to know just know what's going on in their communities. Some people feel it's their right to be able to monitor public servants in real time, at least to some extent. And we're not talking about um, tactical or investigative channels. We're just talking about general operations, mostly. Do body cams make scanner traffic less important? No, I don't think so. So um, we have two public records laws in Colorado. We have the open records law that covers everything except law enforcement. Then we have another records law that covers criminal justice records, body cam footage, is covered by the Criminal Justice Records Act, and you have to make a request that law enforcement can easily deny if it makes the determination that disclosure would be contrary to the public interest. It sounds like uh, negotiations continue, I think, with the Denver Police Department in just the last few seconds. How optimistic are you? They have to get beyond those sticking points. One of those sticking points was an auditing provision that would allow the police department to give them access to any notes, documents, books related to the news organization's uh, use of the scanner. And you really can't have that kind of control. Jeff Roberts leads the Colorado Freedom of Information Coalition and has long advocated against encryption of police scanners. CPR is a member of his coalition. The fight against opioid addiction needs more warriors, according to state health leaders, people equipped with the medication that can reverse overdoses. Here's CPR health reporter John Daly. Last year, opioid overdoses claimed 534 lives in Colorado, but those numbers could have been lower, according to Robert Vallick, who speaks to a crowd at the steps of the state capitol. One of our fellow citizens died from opioid overdose every 16 hours last year, and many of those people could have been saved by naloxone. Naloxone, the drug reversal medication often administered by nasal spray. Valak heads the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention. His group is leading a $320,000 public awareness campaign. The goal is to spread the use of naloxone beyond medical providers and first responders. Another speaker, Michael Miller, says it saved his life when he was dealing with addiction. It was paramedics in all the cases of my overdose reversals, and I would absolutely be gone if it were not for naloxone. Kathleen Hernandez has a story to spotlight how important it is to have it available. She went shopping at a King Supers in an affluent part of Colorado Springs. A woman in her 20s collapsed at the entrance. Hernandez pulled out a naloxone kit from her purse and sprayed it up the woman's nose. I think she would have died. I really do. I mean, she quit breathing. The guy that she was with was freaking out. He obviously had been through it with her before, but I don't know if she would have survived. I don't think she would have. Hernandez works in drug treatment, so it's not surprising she carries naloxone. But she says many ordinary citizens don't. Democratic Representative Chris Kennedy of Lakewood says those using opioids should have the medication nearby. People are using recreational pills. Have naloxone handy. It'll be the best $75 you ever spent. The cost is often lower than that and covered by insurance. Naloxone has saved more than 1,000 lives in Colorado in the last couple of years. Now the goal is to save more. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Denver could be the future home of a museum devoted to the recipients of the Medal of Honor. The foundation behind this project was in Denver this week to meet with officials. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf is following the story. 
Hi, Steph. Hi. What did you learn about the museum's plans? So the Medal of Honor Museum would, of course, include artifacts. Um, they're also looking at multimedia exhibitions. The foundation CEO, Joe Daniels, he says he really wants to go beyond this idea of just text on a wall or or plaques that tell you about these individuals. He wants to create something that feels immersive to help people understand the stories of those who have earned this medal. You know, whether your politics are on the left or right, the idea of building a National Medal of Honor Museum that celebrates those that have earned the highest award, our nation's highest award for valor in combat, that's objectively a good thing. And they think that will make it a big draw. They're expecting... 750,000 to a million visitors every year, and that really depends on the size of the museum building. My goodness. Where would this museum be built if Colorado is chosen for it? Here in Denver, they're eyeing these two parcels in the heart of downtown near Civic Center Park. One of the plots is a 20,000-square-foot piece of land just south of the bus station. The museum hopes to build a gateway park there. They approached RTD, but at a meeting Tuesday night, members of RTD's board said they wouldn't support leasing their real estate to the museum for the requested amount of a dollar a year, as RTD is paying $123,000 a year for that land in a long-term lease. Daniels says he hopes to keep talking with RTD as well as state and local officials, and the other plot of land on the west corner of Colfax and Lincoln is owned by the state. Okay, so both in Denver. What's it going to cost? The foundation is estimating $150 million for this project. They expect to get most of that from private donations, but to make it work, they're also hoping to get 10 to 20 percent from the city and state. Has the city or the state committed to that kind of support? Nothing's committed yet. Uh, The state would look at funding if Denver is chosen. Does the museum have other backers or advocates here? Yeah, the Downtown Denver Partnership appears all in. Uh, President and CEO Tammy Dore says few cities have this kind of prime real estate right downtown. So it's important that the right project goes in there. And she seemed confident that this was the right project. The fact that these two things have convened at the same time, that we still have that land on our premier civic space, and that this couldn't be a more premier project. We feel very fortunate to be in these discussions. Despite all that, this is not a done deal. Who else is in the running? The foundation is also looking at Arlington, Texas, outside of Dallas. And it picked these cities looking for things like a strong tourism market, so attracting a lot of people, a strong philanthropic market, and available land, stuff like that. It's my understanding the foundation already had a site but pulled out. What's that story? Yes, so originally the museum was set to be in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. CEO Joe Daniels says the foundation had a change of heart because there weren't enough tourists. But a report in the Charleston newspaper tells a different story. The paper reviewed correspondence around the museum project and found a breakdown of communication with town leaders, plus confusion over the design plans. What does the foundation say about all of that? Any lessons learned before it enters into further negotiations with Denver? Yeah, Daniel said the failed attempt in South Carolina taught the foundation to seek more public input when building on public land and to have more transparency when they make big decisions. Here he is again. We want to feel that the city of Denver on the day that we open is as proud as anybody who is connected to the museum. This should be a project of Denver, not being imposed onto Denver. 
Daniels and his team will go to Arlington next to meet with officials down there. They're trying to find out which city will offer the most support for this museum. He says they'll announce the selected city October 2nd. Steph, thanks so much. Thank you. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf. She's been looking into plans for a National Medal of Honor Museum. Denver is in the running. Do you know this song? The opening notes might give it away. Put on my blue suede shoes and I boarded the plane. Touched down in the land of the Delta Blues in the middle of the pouring rain. Singer-songwriter Mark Cohn found huge success in 1991 with Walking in Memphis. It helped him win a Grammy and established his career as a gifted storyteller, soul man, and steward of American roots music. Then I'm walking in Memphis, walking with my feet ten feet off a beam. Cohen has worked with Bonnie Raitt, James Taylor, David Crosby, Patty Griffin, and for his latest project, he has teamed up with Grammy-winning veterans of the gospel world, the Blind Boys of Alabama. Yeah, John said the city was built for square. I walk in Jerusalem just like John. I won't be content till I get there. Yeah, walk in Jerusalem just like John. I said I want to be ready. Yeah, I want to be ready. I want to be ready. Oh, yeah. To walk in Jerusalem just like John. The new album, titled Work To Do, comes out Friday. Next week, Mark Cohn and the Blind Boys of Alabama kick off the western leg of their summer tour at Chautauqua Auditorium in Boulder. We're going to discuss that and the event that nearly took his life in Denver 14 years ago. Mark, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I have to say that so much of your music gives me gospel goosebumps. I just get (laughs) so moved. Do you remember the first time you heard gospel? I don't remember the very first time, but it was there from the time I was a kid. I don't even know why or how. Um, I was a Jewish kid growing up in the suburbs of Cleveland, but somehow gospel music made its way through to my my brainwaves, and it's moved me from the very beginning, and still does, obviously. Was it your parents? Was it uh, some other influence? Well, one of my older brothers was a really great piano player, much better than me. And he had a band that used to rehearse in our basement. And they largely played Ray Charles and Dion Warwick and things like that. But I think he also was plugged into gospel. And that's probably, listen, I mean, Ray Charles, that comes from gospel. Basically, what Ray did was take the, the feel and the vibe and the passion of gospel music and change the lyric. There also, my parents died when I was quite young, and I think for a brief moment there was someone along with my older brother who took care of me, and I think she sang a lot of gospel music. It strikes me that so much of gospel comes from pain and strife. Mm. Uh, I wonder if having lost your parents early on, perhaps you identified with gospel because it was a kind of plaintive genre of music. That's certainly possible. That's certainly possible. I think there were a lot of things about it. I mean, it's also... You know, it can be quite fiery and passionate and just unendingly soulful. Um, So I was attracted to all kinds of music from the time I was seven or eight years old. And I was already writing songs then, too. So, um, yeah, yeah, I had a strange childhood. (laughs) A A lot to write about, so I did. What speaks to you about this collaboration with the Blind Boys? Well, obviously, it's my early love of gospel music coming completely full circle. 
Um, one of the things I loved growing up, another huge influence for me was Paul Simon. And he had a record called There Goes Rhyme and Simon, which to this day is still one of my favorite albums of all time. Definitely a desert island disc for me. And on that record, there's a song called Tenderness and Loves Me Like a Rock, which featured the Dixie Hummingbirds, a great gospel group. And that combination of Paul's music, lyrical sensibility, his voice matched with the Dixie Hummingbirds, which were an amazing group, uh, is one of the greatest sounds I've ever heard. So I suppose this collaboration with the Blind Boys is my version of that, you know, mixing singer-songwriter sensibility with gospel group sound, which was already sort of in the recordings of mine, songs like Ghost Train, Silver Thunderbird, Walking in Memphis, Baby King. These are all songs that had gospel influence built into them. Okay, let's do something fun. Why don't we first play something from that Paul Simon record, and then we'll, uh, we're going to try to morph that into uh, what you've done with the Blind Boys. Let's do a side-by-side uh, audio taste test. When I was a little boy, the devil called my name. See now, who do, who do you think you're fooling? I'm a consecrated boy. I'm a Singer in Sunday choir. That second track, your track with the Blind Boys of Alabama, Marcon, is called Work To Do. Tell us about this track. I had the Blind Boys voices in my head when I wrote that song, and I actually meant the lead vocal to be sung by Jimmy Carter, the oldest member of the group who's, I think, about to turn 88 and is a force of nature. I heard him singing that lyric, which is basically an older man's song uh, about being sort of at the end of your road, but not necessarily at the end of your purpose here. Uh, And Jimmy is so clearly not at the end of his purpose here. He still makes thousands of people smile every night that he comes on stage. Can I put a finer point on what you just said there? To be at the end of your road, but not at the end of your purpose. You mean to not have necessarily much life left, but still a lot to do in that small period of time? Exactly. Exactly. That's sort of the idea behind the song, that the work we have, you know, it could be spiritual work, it could be personal work, it could be, it could be any kind of work, or just work, you know, getting out there and, and doing your job. So I was thinking about Jimmy when I wrote that song, even though I'm doing the lead vocal, I was hearing him singing those words. Around this time, when shadows are tall, when the moon's on the rise, and the red hands on the wall. I think of my friends gone without trace And I wonder why I'm still walking around this place
Mark, on your debut record in 1991, it won you the coveted Best New Artist Grammy at 32, um, compared to some recent winners in that category. Chance, <laughs> the rapper, Megan Trainer. 32 may seem considerably older. Do you remember what you thought at the time of that label, New Artist? I mean, as you've told us, you were writing songs from boyhood. Yeah, that that is sort of a strange title, isn't it? Um, even best new is strange. But listen, <laughs> at the time, I was just so thrilled to be in that rarefied air. You know, I grew up when there was no MTV yet, no VH1. I didn't go to a lot of shows when I was a kid. So the Grammys is where I saw Paul Simon and Stevie Wonder and all my heroes. Got to hear what their speaking voices were like, you know, and how they walked and what what their vibe was. So to be nominated and ultimately to win, whether it was Best New Artist or there were a couple others I was nominated for, it was all thrilling. Um, I wasn't thinking about age or anything like that. I just remember I gave Roseanne Cash a kiss on my way up, even though my wife was sitting next to me on the other side (laughs) and uh, went up and got my award. How did Roseanne feel about that? Well, I, I, she she was fine, and she still teases me about it to this day. We're good friends, and her her husband is my best friend and the producer of this record. Um, so, yeah, she thought it was pretty odd, but she understands now. <laughs> You're talking about John Leventhal here. That's right. Okay, this new album with the Blind Boys is a mix of studio collaborations and live performances uh, with new arrangements of songs from throughout your career. Has performing these with the Blind Boys like breathed new life into some of that older material for you? Totally, totally. Uh, yes, they have totally breathed new life into the material. I mean, I look across my piano at, at the five of them singing these songs with me, and I'm smiling till it hurts. I mean, I've seen pictures of myself on stage with them. I've never looked happier. And a lot of that is just because of the incredible soul and feeling they've brought to my tunes. I said, me, me, I want to go down, me, me, I want to go down, me, me, I want to go down, down my silver thunder I said, me, me, won't go down, me, me, I want to, Gospel Goosebumps today with Grammy-winning singer-songwriter Mark Cohn. He's about to kick off the western leg of his summer tour in Colorado with the Blind Boys of Alabama. After a break, Cohn's brush with death in Denver and attempted carjacking after a performance here. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Legal marijuana is green. Factually, it just is green. Well, as an industry, it's actually not very green at all. On the latest episode of the new podcast from CPR called On Something, we take a look at one guy in Gypsum, Colorado, who is trying his darndest to grow weed with the smallest carbon footprint possible. Zero carbon footprint, in fact. Listen to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. More now of our conversation with Mark Cohn for his latest album, the Grammy-winning singer-songwriter is going gospel with the Blind Boys of Alabama.
Cohn and the Blind Boys will be in Colorado next week, which for Cohn always stirs mixed emotions. I want to talk about a near-death experience you had in Denver in August of 2005. You just played a sold-out show at the Denver Botanic Gardens, and you and your entourage were in a van driving downtown near the 16th Street Mall. Uh, Will you pick up the story from there? Yeah, we were coming back to the hotel, had a fantastic show. I loved the Botanic Gardens, one of my favorite places to play, just having everybody surrounding you. And I was the only one who noticed some sort of uh, instability, maybe 100 yards to the left of our van. Just something was going on. I didn't know what it was. Somebody was running away. Uh, That's what it was. I'm just remembering that. And uh, within seconds of me noticing that, this man appeared right in front of our van. The driver was still driving it. Uh, but he just stood right in front of the van, sort of daring us to stop. And I was the only one who saw that first there was a man and then there was a gun. And shots rang out. I don't remember how many. And as I yelled duck for everybody in the van, unbeknownst to me, I got the bullet landed on the left side of my forehead by my temple and rested because it was a 22 and went through the windshield. You couldn't see it. There was just a hole in my head apparently. But man, this is so weird to talk about all these years later. So there was a hole in my head and blood started streaming down and, and I'd been shot. And unbelievably because of, like I was saying, the 22 caliber and the, the windshield that it went through, grazing my tour manager's chin, uh, it stopped just short of my skull and just sat in this little skin that's there. And I watched them take the bullet out. It was a miracle that I survived. And obviously something, even when I talk about it today, uh, it feels like an out-of-body thing. Like, am I really telling a story about myself? Because <laughs> hmm. um, you just never, you never think that these things are going to happen. But obviously they do. And that night was my uh, luckiest unlucky night. I want to just go back to something you said, unbeknownst to me, I think, you know, most of us have not been shot. So I, it's hard for me to relate to the idea of not knowing that you've been shot. Yet uh, That's an mm. experience, of course, that I've heard about. But can you just uh, say a few more words about that? I think that's largely shock, you know, and the fact that in the end, even though it was emotionally overwhelming and incredibly scary in the moment and for, you know, months after... You know, it wasn't meant to kill me. So, uh, I mean, it it stopped just a centimeter short of killing me or blinding me. So I just wasn't aware of anything until my guitar player looked at me and said, Mark, we got to get out of this van and get you to the hospital. I thought the driver had been shot. It was was a a way to get our car. It was a carjacking. But the man was very high. And I thought he was, he was aiming for the driver and that's who I thought was hit. So I actually, even with the bullet in my head, tried to grab the wheel from behind him. But, you know, it only took a, a minute or so to realize I was the one that had been shot. Although the only pain I felt was when they finally took the bullet out. You were hospitalized really for observation, but released after just eight hours. I mean, even more yeah. remarkable. And I'll say that the man who shot you uh, got 36 years for attempted murder. During your recovery, you were inspired to return to the studio for the first time in, I think, over a decade. And the result was 2007's Join the Parade. Uh, Maybe just talk a bit about the role that songwriting had on your healing process. Uh, Yeah, songwriting helped me get through 
that very fragile time and, you know, recovering from the gunshot. Um, like I said, it wasn't a physical recovery. It was all emotional. Uh, and I went to somebody who, you know, dealt with post-traumatic stress, and that was very helpful. And this whole sort of fragility was made even worse because about three weeks after I got shot, Hurricane Katrina hit. So oh there I was watching all of this unfold in my personally fragile state, and it really hit me hard. I mean, it would have anyway, only because of how influenced so many of my friends and I have been by New Orleans and their culture and their music. You know, but when I saw a headline going by that said, you know, on the, on the news, uh, Fats Domino, nobody knows where Fats Domino is. You know, there were sort of headlines like that for days. It's not that you'd lived in New Orleans. It's that it was a kind of spiritual city for you as a musician, I gather. Exactly. Exactly. So just the combination of my personal fragile state and this horror happening to one of the great American cities just put me in a place where I needed to write. You know, there was a lot to sing about, to talk about, to write about. And like I've always done, uh, in moments like that especially, uh, music just seems to start coming. I find myself... I find ideas coming at me faster than they normally would in sort of my normal day-to-day life. Last question just about the shooting. I don't want to dwell on it too long, but what should people who haven't dealt with violent crime understand about people who have? You know, I think we all, all I'll say is I, I think we all walk around with a necessary sense of safety. But the truth of the matter is none of us knows when we're going to be the victim of something horrible. It happens every day. And it's a horrible thing. I mean, surviving it was miraculous and wonderful. I feel very blessed that I've had, you know, more years than it seems like I should have. But I would say, you know, it's a horror. It's a horror. And uh, anything, you know, we can all do to sort of stop that, you know, I don't want to be proselytizing at the moment. But I, I do feel like I've sung some concerts that have to do with gun control. And I'm very often the only guy on stage who can really talk about this personally. So I I keep all of that largely to myself, but yeah, I think it's something very important for everyone to realize. It could be your kid, it could be your father, your mother, who is the victim, and uh, how can we let this go on? You returned to Denver for a Botanic Gardens show in the summer of 2008. That was less than three years after the shooting. When you come to Colorado, like, do you still associate it with that event, or um, do we represent something more to you? I want to hope that it's the latter, Mark Cohn. It is. It is the latter. It's so great. I mean, I already felt like I had forged a wonderful relationship with my Colorado audience. But this event, and I do think, of course, I think about it every time I come there, but the context now is quite lovely. Everybody was so kind and so loving and so supportive. And when I came back to play, it was like I was playing my hometown. Um, felt more like my hometown than my hometown. <laughs> so wow. um, it's really been wonderful, I have to say. I mean, I'm at a point now where, you know, I don't mention it anymore. But I think there are obviously people in the audience that know what happened. And there is a very special connection because of that. 
And uh, it's something I feel very grateful for. Do you ever get tired of performing Walking in Memphis? <laughs> I really don't. I mean, it's a rare night when I feel like, oh, do I have to tell this story again? I think it's largely because I like the song. But even more to the point is that it's a song about the love of music, the transformational power of music. That's not hard for me to tap into. Of course, that's my life, is believing in the power of music. That's why I go out there, and that's why people are there. That's why I go to other people's shows. It's usually something I feel very connected to, that song. And uh, just having a different crowd every night respond to it keeps it alive as well. Plus the fact that the, the arrangement of it has changed over the years, and sometimes from week to week. So I find ways to keep it fresh for, for myself and for my band and for the audience. And now you have the reboot with the Blind Boys, which uh, we'll, yes. we'll, we'll leave on. Mark, it's really been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Listen up. They got some catfish on the table. Oh, yeah. Catfish on the table. They got the gospel in the hey. air. Gospel in the air, baby. Yeah. Come on, they come on. Mark Cohn and the Blind Boys of Alabama perform August 12th at Chautauqua Auditorium in Boulder. Their new album together, Work to Do, is out Friday. So glad we saw you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Friend.